So endometrium, myometrium, perimetrium are the layers of the uterus. And also you can see the blood supply here, which is where the blood arrives to the uterus by means of the uterine artery, which is a branch of the internal iliac in the pelvis. And here in this diagram, we see a circle, which is an amplification of one part of the endometrium. And we can distinguish two layers, stratum functionalis and stratum basalis. Basalis is innermost, functionalis, and functionalis is innermost, is in contact with the uterine cavity. And what the endometrium has is endometrial glands, glands that contain or secrete mucus, cells that store glycogen, nutrients, and the blood vessels are called radial and spiral arterioles. Another way that to see, to see the endometrium and myometrium and perimetrium is here. We see the three layers. You can see the perimetrium is very thin. The myometrium is very thick. And the endometrium, the endometrium has two layers, the basalis and the functionalis. The basalis is the one that, as the name says, is the base. It is resting on the endometrium. And the functionalis, it looks lighter because it contains more, more uh, areolar connective tissue, more blood vessels, and many glands. But it's called functionalis because that is the layer that will change under the influence of hormones. The basalis is mostly constant. The functionalis grows, regrows, and it's lost during menstruation, and then in the next cycle it regrows. The functionalis endometrium, that's the one that changes under the influence of hormones. Under the microscope, and this is what we will see in the lab this week, we can see the presence of these three layers, the endometrium, myometrium, and usually we can trace a line to determine the, where the, the limit between endometrium and myometrium is. And then the perimetrium is very thin. It's one layer, I mean one cell layer, simple squamous epithelium, as the peritoneum is defined. And if you see the whole organ, you will see something like this here below. The lumen, which is the uterine cavity, the endometrium, the myometrium, and the perimetrium. <coughs> so we'll go back to the endometrium when we talk about the physiology and we'll see how these cells of the functionalis layer changes and the, uh, under the influence of hormones. Continue with the description of the organs of the reproductive system. The cervix of the uterus has an opening and that opening connects to the vagina, the vaginal canal. And the vagina is a canal which has fibromuscular walls. 
It's a mucous membrane, it stratifies squamous epithelium and comes from the outside, from the skin, and it continues inside to the uterine cervix. It's a passageway for menstrual flow to receive sperm and is part of the lower birth canal. External genitalia refers to all these structures. Mons pubis is a layer of connective tissue and adipose tissue that is located on top <coughs> of the pubic bone. Labia majora, labia minora, and anteriorly, erectile tissue that will be the equivalent to the penis, which is the clitoris. And the clitoris is very similar in structure and tissue to the penis because it contains all these erectile tissue, corpus cavernosum, spongiosum, not exactly like the penis, but the tissue is essentially the same features. It has these spaces of blood inside. The vestibule is that area between the labia minora and the vaginal orifice, the opening. And things that we can find here are the vaginal orifice and the external urethral orifice. And both sides of the urethra, we don't see that very clear in this picture, but there are two openings, two small openings from two glands. These are called the paraurethral glands and they will be the equivalent to the prostate gland. So in the development of the embryo, at some point we see that the, some cells will turn into the prostate gland, and those cells in the female will turn into the uh, paraurethral glands, next to the urethra. And remember in the male, the prostate is surrounded, the neck of the bladder and the urethra. These glands produce mucus. These glands produce mucus to lubricate the external uh, <coughs> vaginal canal. And two more glands, two more glands that are found more posterior are the vestibular glands or Bartholin's glands. The openings are, as I said, posterior in both sides of the labia minora and the vestibule. And also they produce mucus. These two glands, these Bartholin's glands or vestibular glands, they are sometimes infected by bacteria and they get inflamed and they turn into a big cyst. And as you can understand, this is a very painful area and sometimes this is the first sign of uh, uh, infection with an STD, which could be a uh, gonorrhea or chlamydia, some sexual transmitted disease, sometimes it infects this gland and we see like accumulation of pus and uh, grows like a cyst. And this area, the area that is comprising the opening, the vaginal canal and uh, these structures is called the perineum. 
perineum is a term for this area that has a diamond shape and it has as limits the pubic symphysis, the two rami of the pubic bone, and the coccyx, the ischial tuberosity as a coroner, and the coccyx posteriorly. So all this part is called the perineum and it contains all these structures of external genitalia. <coughs> Besides, sometimes what we do is trace a line here connecting the two corners and we have now two triangles. Anterior triangle and posterior triangle, which are called the urogenital triangle and anal triangle. The anal triangle is where the anus is. So in these spaces that we see white, they're usually muscles, and these are what we call muscles of the pelvic floor. That close the pelvic outlet and help to hold all the organs in place. A sagittal section of the female reproductive anatomy, we can see it here. Um, some of the important things, and I emphasize this in the lab, that you identify and check these areas called the rectouterine pouch, which is between the uterus and the rectum, and the vesicouterine pouch between the urinary bladder and the uterus, which are reflections of the peritoneum. They are reflections of the peritoneum. And in the standing position like this, if there is some fluid, blood, pus, inflammatory fluid, they will go to the lowest part. And the lowest part is in the pelvis, in the rectouterine pouch. And it happens that the rectouterine pouch is very close to the vaginal canal. The vaginal canal is here in green, and it comes all this way. So you see how close they get. We'll see that in the lab and how this is important as an anatomical uh, reference. Okay, some words about the mammary glands before we go into the physiology of the female reproductive system. <coughs> mammary glands are actually modified sweat glands. Modified sweat glands, they derive from the skin. During the development, some cells get inside the connective tissue and get specialized into glands. There are like 15 or 20 lobes, which are groups of glands divided in lobules. And each lobule contains the glands arranged in alveoli, which is just a group of cells that connect to a duct. And these ducts are going to open and the pigmented area, which is called the areola in the skin, and the nipple that contains all the openings of these lactiferous ducts. That's how we call it, lactiferous ducts. Right before the lactiferous duct, we have lactiferous sinuses, which are just dilations of these ducts right before the milk go outside. And notice that the glandular tissue is in the middle of yellow tissue, which is adipose tissue. So the mammary gland is practically in, 
embedded into the adipose tissue of the anterior thorax. And what's behind? Well, all this adipose tissue is anchored to the fascia called pectoral fascia, which is covering the muscle here, the pectoralis major. All these lines that we see here, like white lines, crossing in this way from the fascia to the skin, those are called the suspensory ligament of the breast or Cooper's ligament. And these tracts, these fibrous tracts, are, are called ligaments because they are connective tissue. And they are the ones that hold all the organ and um, determines the shape of the mammary gland. A different view, we see it here, a sagittal plane showing all these structures. And we see the pectoralis major, pectoralis major right behind all the mammary gland and the adipose tissue. Mammograms are the study of the mammary glands and these are performed with the purpose of detecting abnormal tissue, which may be a growth or cancer. And the cancer is usually developed from the ducts. We call them carcinoma, adenocarcinoma of the, uh, of the breast. And usually we see it in the little ducts, the lactiferous ducts. There are other lesions like benign cysts like we see here, <coughs> it's not cancer, but it's a dilation of one of these lactiferous sinus or lactiferous ducts. Cancer usually looks wider and irregular. That, that is something that we see in the images always. If the borders are regular, that is not cancer usually. If the borders are irregular, that probably is cancer. And if we detect these lesions, the next thing that follows is to take a biopsy. We take a piece of the tissue, take a piece of that growth, and send it to the lab and, and determine if it's cancer or not. And according to that, the procedures may be or just medical treatment or a mastectomy, which is a removal of the mammary gland. In removing the mammary gland, we have to remove also lymph nodes of the axillary region in order to make sure that they are not invaded by cancer cells. Okay, now let's go more into the physiology of the female reproductive system. There's a lot of interactions here, a lot of uh, hormonal interactions and synchronization between the ovaries and the uterus, the endometrium. All these changes start, start um, during puberty with the first cycle. And every month, the duration of the cycle is approximately a month, 28 days. There are two things that change, the ovary and the uterus. In the ovary, we see oogenesis, which is the word that describes the development of the egg and getting ready to be fertilized. And the uterus gets ready to receive that egg in case it's fertilized. That's the point of all these changes. 
Now, how this is regulated? By an axis that involves hypothalamus, anterior pituitary gland, and ovaries. <coughs> this picture is showing the synchronization that occurs in the ovary and the uterus. The top line are showing the sequence Top line is showing the sequence of development of the follicles. The ovary contains follicles, and the follicles are composed by the egg or oocyte and cells that surround the egg. There are two components. So here we see the sequence of primordial follicle, which changes into primary follicle first, then secondary follicle, then mature follicle, then the egg is released. This is a very important point in the cycle, which is the mid part of the cycle, the mid cycle. Ovulation will happen there. That's the release of the egg from the ovary. And then the, the egg comes out, but then the, the other cells will remain and they will turn into corpus luteum, which is a group of cells that will keep producing hormones. Then the corpus luteum gets smaller and that's at the end, by the end of the cycle, day 28. What happens in the uterus? The bottom part is showing the endometrium, just the endometrium. And what happens? In the first day of the cycle, and this is uh, uh, something that was decided and uh, like a beginning point, the first day of the cycle is the first day of menstruation. That's important uh, set point. Then we see day two, day four, menstruation, and the endometrium gets thinner. But the day five or six, it's just this thick, and it's practically endometrium of the basal layer, basal, uh, basal endometrium. Now the functional is layered, the basal is layered. Then we see in the next days that the endometrium starts growing, and it's growing in thickness, getting thicker, thicker, and thicker. Maximum thickness at the midpoint of the cycle. Then, after the ovulation, the endometrium remains almost the same thickness, but there is an important change. The glands, look at the glands in the first part compared with the glands in the second part. The glands in the second part looks thicker. They have more nutrients, they have more glycogen. And this endometrium of the second part of the cycle is very rich in nutrients. That is the point of the endometrium in the second part of the cycle. But then what happens, the egg is being released, there's a corpus luteum that maintains actually this endometrium, but then the corpus luteum uh, turns smaller, it starts to be reabsorbed or degenerate, and therefore the supply of hormones decrease. There's less hormones produced by the corpus luteum. And the endometrium is supported by these hormones. If there's no more of these hormones produced by the corpus luteum, or the levels decline, then the endometrium cells will start dying. And you see how the endometrium starts getting thinner until the day one of the next cycle where the next menstruation will start.
Those are the events that happen in the ovary and in the uterus. And as you see, they are synchronized. The ovulation marks the point at which the endometrium will turn from being start for, for growing until it gets rich in nutrients in the second part of the cycle. All this is controlled and regulated by hormones. And this is the axis, the axis, hypothalamus, pituitary gland, ovary. <coughs> Starting from the very top, the hypothalamus produces these um, hormones called gonadotropin-releasing hormones, GnRH. The GnRH comes down the pituitary gland and it stimulates cells in the pituitary gland that will produce two hormones, LH and FSH. Now these hormones are released to the blood, they reach the ovaries, and the FSH will stimulate the ovary to grow follicles. So the follicles starts growing from primordial to primary, secondary, and so on. And at the mid part of the cycle, on the day 14 of the cycle, the LH, the second hormone, will have a peak, will increase suddenly, and it will promote ovulation. Not only that, the LH will stimulate cells of the corpus luteum, and the corpus luteum will keep producing hormones to maintain and support the endometrium. And below we see the same sequence that we saw in the previous picture. Uh, the synchronization of ovulation that happens in the day 14 of the cycle. And then we see in the first part the developing follicles. And in the second part, the corpus luteum in yellow. <coughs> now these, these, these phases, they, they have names. And that, those are the names that we see uh, underneath at the very bottom. In the endometrium, we start with the menstrual phase, those days, days of menstruation. Then, when the menstruation stops and the endometrium starts growing again, that's called proliferated phase. After the day 14, the endometrium gets rich in nutrients and blood supply. This is called the secretory phase. And right before the next period, the next menstruation, there are a few days that are known as the premenstrual phase. And then we go with the next, with the next period, the next cycle. So this is a summary of some statements about these two graphs. The hormones um, that are produced the very top in the pituitary, I mean the hypothalamus are the GnRH. Pituitary gland hormones are FSH and LH. And FSH and LH will exert its influence on the ovary, on the ovary to determine the ovarian cycle, where the follicles will start changing from primary, secondary, and tertiary. But then Something that we haven't mentioned yet is that the ovaries, at the same time that they grow follicles, they will produce hormones from the very beginning. What hormones? Estrogen and progesterone. And the estrogen and progesterone are the ones 
that will exert its influence on the uterus and determine the uterine cycle. Which is all these changes, cyclic changes that the endometrium goes through from day one to day 28. Now the ovary, the process called oogenesis. The eggs, the eggs will continue their development because they were arrested in one stage and they continue their development in preparation from being fertilized. The oogenesis actually starts before birth. In male spermatogenesis, the spermatogonia, which is the first cell, is present in the testicle and remains inactive until puberty. <coughs> the equivalent in the ovary in the female, the oogonia, the oogonia, which are the diploid cells, starts their division in right before birth, during the development. So at birth, in the ovaries of a female, there is no oogonia. The oogonia, all of them have been transformed into the next stage of development, which is a primary oocyte. That's an important difference between the ovaries and the testicles. In the testicles, we have spermatogonia. In the ovaries, there is no more oogonia. They are just oocytes. So the oogenesis in female begins even before birth. We can see that in this graph, this line represents birth. Because this side is before birth. And all these are oogonia, the oogonia. Remember the spermatogonia divides and it gives place to two daughter cells. One of them will get into meiosis and the other one will replace the spermatogonia, the mother. Well, the same thing happens here, but in the ovary that process starts very early to the point that all the oogonia, at some point, they turn into the primary oocyte already. So all these, right before birth, are primary oocytes. They are not oogonia anymore. So they are counted. They are the limited number of oocytes in the ovary. Then those oocytes will remain in the ovary from birth until puberty. And at puberty, when the hormones are released for the very first time, they start assimilating them in the ovary. And what they do, the primary oocyte wakes up and it starts developing into primary follicle, secondary follicle, and so under the influence of the FSH. The secondary follicle, which contains spaces, the primary follicle is this one, with, that contains the egg and many cells around, many cells around. Then when some spaces appear, that's called the secondary follicle. And when it grows more, it's called the graphian follicle. Don't confuse, we say it's primary follicle, secondary follicle, but the oocyte is changing from primary to secondary oocyte. Not necessarily they go at the same, at the same speed, the same rate. 
But what is true is that at ovulation, at ovulation, the graphene follicle contains a secondary oocyte. It's a secondary oocyte. Initially, it was a primary oocyte. So during the days of the cycle, it will progress into secondary oocyte. So the oocyte is one thing, and the follicle is the oocyte plus all the cells around. And ovulation comes. Ovulation comes. The oocyte, secondary oocyte, goes out. And all these cells are, we're wrapping the oocyte, they will stay in the ovary and turn into the corpus luteum. That will secrete estrogen and progesterone. So here we see these, these changes the ovarian, in the ovarian cycle. Most oogonia degenerate before birth. They turn into primary oocytes, and the rest will just degenerate. Yeah. Did you say the primary oocyte um, occurs before birth and after birth? Yeah. After birth, there is only primary oocytes in the ovary. But there's still primary oocytes. Here you go. It's different. Primary oocyte is much different than, say, in primordial follicle. A follicle contains the oocyte plus the cells around. So if I say primordial follicle, it contains a primary oocyte. Now the primordial follicle grows into a primary follicle, right? The primary follicle still has a primary oocyte. When the primary, when the primary follicle turns into the secondary follicle, then is when we have a secondary oocyte. So they go a different rate. So there are two different things, the, the oocyte and the follicle. Primary oocytes, those are the ones that are in the ovary at birth. And they get arrested in meiosis one, and actually prophase of meiosis one. They turn primary oocytes, it starts going to meiosis, and then it stops. You get arrested in prophase of meiosis one. And then it gets surrounded by follicular cells, and this is the primordial follicle. Then at puberty, under the influence of these two hormones, LH and FSH, what happens at puberty is that the hypothalamus starts producing or releasing GnRH under the stimulation of different parts of the brain. The genetics will determine at some point, hypothalamus starts producing GnRH and starts stimulating pituitary gland, the pituitary gland starts producing LH and FSH. And so with these hormones, many primordial follicles will be stimulated each month, each month at the, very, at the beginning. But only one will reach maturation and it will be ovulated. Many, several, hundreds of primordial follicles are stimulated by the hormones but only one will be ovulated. That means that under the influence of hormones, at some point during the, over, uh, during the month, if we take 
samples of the ovary every day, we'll see hundreds of primordial follicles turning into primary follicles, secondary follicles, and all of them not at the same rate, not at the same speed, the different speed, until one of them reaches maturation and it's ovulated. And what happens with, with the rest? With the rest will die and be reabsorbed. Will be reabsorbed. So from hundreds of primary follicles containing all sites, only one all site will be ovulated. And the rest will not progress. The secondary oocyte is the one that is ovulated because meiosis one is completed. The meiosis one that was in, in hold from, the, from birth until puberty under the influence of the hormones, it will complete it and I will start um, completing meiosis one and the oocyte is a secondary oocyte. So the primary oocyte gets ready for ovulation. It completes meiosis one, meaning that it divides into haploid cells, one N. But what we see here is that there's an equal size of these two cells. One of them is a big cell, and that's what the secondary oocyte is. But the other one is a very small cell and it's not actually a functional cell. It's called the polar body. There you see the oogonium turned into the primary oocyte. The primary oocyte turns into, or divides into secondary oocyte and first polar body. Well, that polar body is actually a little cell containing DNA of N chromosomes, but with a small amount of cytoplasm, and it's not functional, and it would be reabsorbed. And the only one that stays is one secondary oocyte. So here, the development is one to one. It's not one to two and two to four like the sperm cells. And as I was saying, in any moment during the cycle, if you get a sample of the ovary under the microscope, you will see follicles in different stages of development. You will see primary follicles, primordial follicles, secondary follicles, and maybe a graphene follicle that is reaching maturation and be ready to ovulate. Questions, comments to this point? Yes? Birth control. We're going to talk about birth control, but one thing about birth control is if uh, the birth control contains hormones, and it contains estrogens and progesterone. One important fact or aspect of the ovarian cycle and the mediterranean cycle is that the level of hormones has to change along the cycle. There are peaks, there are downs, ups and downs. And each change will determine something in the endometrium or the ovulation or something. But if I give contraception with estrogens and progesterone, I give the body a same amount of estrogen and progesterone the whole cycle, the whole month. So there will be no peaks, no ups and downs. 
And therefore, there is no ovulation, there is no changes in the endometrium, and that's the, uh, the effect of the, of the birth control. So during, during the time that someone is taking birth control pills, for instance, there is no ovulation. The ovaries actually get smaller. Technically, they get atrophic. If you take an, an ultrasound of someone not taking uh, birth control and compare with someone taking birth control, the ovaries of this person with birth control are smaller because there's no activity, there's no ovulation, there's no follicles growing, it's inactive. But that doesn't mean that the ovaries will not resume its job or activity after the birth control pills are stopped. And that's what happens actually as soon as birth control is stopped with the next month, the ovaries will be completely functional. That didn't happen some time ago when uh, the first contraceptive pills were released. They contained large amounts of estrogen and progesterone and usually blocked the ovaries for a long time. There were stories of women that took birth control and they stopped and they were not able to uh, get pregnant for two years after the stop. But now, just, just forget one and and you're pregnant then it's month. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's the point, not, uh, not to interrupt the function of the over, just make it inactive. Okay, let's take a break. So we're describing all this physiology of the ovary and uterus and we see how the oocytes, they develop inside the follicles. And as I was saying, there are two different things, don't confuse oocyte maturation and follicle maturation, which are two different things. The primary oocyte is the one that is present at birth, it is present in the primordial follicle, and then when the follicle turns into secondary follicles, usually when the secondary or the primary oocyte turns into the secondary oocyte. And it has to be in secondary oocyte stage to be fertilized. The sperm, when it meets the egg, the egg has to be in secondary oocyte stage. And then is when it gets fertilized. Here we have all the follicles the follicles in the different stages. First one is a primordial follicle, which we see the primary oocyte. Primary oocyte. Then the primary follicle. The only difference is primordial follicle is surrounded, the oocyte is surrounded by one single layer of follicular cells. But then, in primary follicle, this, fo this oocyte is surrounded up by many cells, and those are called granulosa cells. That's the difference between the primordial and primary follicle. Now, look at this one. It doesn't mean that the oocyte gets smaller. We're just making these pictures to fit in one slide. So it actually grows, the cells around grows a lot, and you see the difference. The next stage is shown as the secondary follicle. The secondary follicle is the moment at which 
space appears in the middle of those granulosa cells, and that space is called the antrum. The antrum. And why that space? Because those granulosa cells will start secreting estrogens. Those are the ones that produce estrogen. And where it goes? It goes there, to that space called the antrum. So as long as they keep dividing, dividing, more estrogens are produced, and that's why this follicle starts growing and growing and getting dilated by the fluid in the antrum. At the same time, these estrogens are absorbed to the blood and circulate in the whole bloodstream. And that's how they reach the uterus, through the circulation. And then finally, we have the final stage, which is known as the mature follicle, or graphene follicle, where we see the primary oocyte, and notice that it's still in primary oocyte. It may change to secondary oocyte at any moment, but there's no correlation, as I was saying. It doesn't mean that the primary follicle has a primary oocyte and the secondary follicle has a secondary oocyte, not necessarily. There are two different things. We see the antrum bigger with follicular fluid that contains estrogen, and the oocyte is surrounded by some cells that remain very close to the oocyte, and those cells are called the corona radiata, corona radiata cells. When the oocyte is ovulated and it gets into the tube, this oocyte is still surrounded by the corona radiata cells. Those cells are, uh, surround the oocyte in the uh, mature follicle. How ovulation happens? Actually, the secondary oocyte starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and gets closer to the wall of the ovary and exerts pressure on the surface of the ovary and it breaks the wall, actually. And it breaks the wall under the influence, under the influence of LH. So here what we see is these green arrows are showing the high level of estrogens that are produced here in the antrum. And this estrogen is going to stimulate the hypothalamus and pituitary gland. And pituitary gland will produce LH, and the LH will determine the final, the trigger point, and ovulation happens. The surface of the ovary breaks, and uh, we see the oocyte being ovulated, surrounded by the corona radiata cells. We see the sequence here, and if we trace a line here, we can divide, like dividing the cycle. It doesn't mean that the half the ovary, this happens in half the ovary and the other half of the ovary. We're just dividing this by um, deductive purpose. But we see the sequence of primary, secondary follicle, and uh, graphene follicle, ovulation, and from here, corpus luteums, corpus luteum. Now the corpus luteum will not last forever. It degenerates <coughs> at the end of the cycle and will turn into corpus albicans. Corpus albicans, which is like a scar. If you see the ovary in the lab, the slides that we have, some of them, you will see the corpus albicans. 
and it's like a scar of connective tissue. It looks like this <coughs> irregular, dense irregular connective tissue that we studied before. It looks something like that. It's like a little scar, corpus albicans. Now the oocyte, when it's ovulated, when it's ovulated, what happens? It is sent outside the ovary. And without a specific destination, the uterine tube has to get it. And the uterine tube with this part called the fimbria is always making this. The ovary is like my hand and the tube is close to the ovary and moving this fimbria like this and exerting negative pressure. So when the oocyte is ovulated, soon it captures, it's captured by the uterine tube. But it may fall. The oocyte is ovulated and the uterine didn't get it and the oocyte boom fall into the pelvic cavity and is reabsorbed and there's no fertilization, no, no chance for fertilization that month. If sperm is present, the sperm has to go all the way up to the uterine tube. And sometimes the ovulation happens, the oocyte gets into the tube and the sperm already there. They're waiting. May happen. They may happen. The, um, the sperm cells, they take, for about, they take about 48 hours, 24, 48 hours to get there. And if the sperm is present and it fertilizes the secondary oocyte, the meiosis too continues and the secondary oocyte will divide in one polar body again and one secondary oocyte. And in the picture we see the sequence here, the, over, the, the egg being captured by the tube and uh, getting to the ampulla where there is some sperm and that is the place that usually the fertilization occurs. And this is the whole sequence of oogenesis. The oogenesis, it starts with the oogonium, which we say <coughs> is in the fetal development. Primary oocytes after puberty will continue the meiosis and it will divide into a secondary oocyte and first polar body. Secondary oocyte will complete its maturation and after fertilization, after ovulation and fertilization. <coughs> so the follicles contain oocyte plus cells around that produce estrogens. Graphene follicle is the one that is ovulated and the remaining cells turn into corpus luteum. The corpus luteum produces more progesterone, secretes progesterone, the second hormone. The progesterone is the hormone of the second part of the cycle, the estrogens of the first part of the cycle. And we divide this uh, ovarian cycle in three phases, one to 13, follicular development, 14 is ovulation, and 15 to 28 is the corpus luteum development. Now the correlation of all these levels of hormones is seen here. We see ovulation in the middle. We see the follicular phase, luteal phase. That means progesterone is working here by action of the corpus luteum. We see the endometrium, how it changes. First part, second part of the cycle. 
And what we see up here is the level of estrogen and progesterone. The level of estrogen continues going up, up, up until the ovulation and then declines. Progesterone it starts being produced by the corpus luteum and if there is pregnancy, then the corpus luteum will keep producing progesterone. And the progesterone, the point is to make the endometrium rich in nutrients and maintain, support the endometrium. So if there is pregnancy, the endometrium, the endometrium will continue there. And we know that as a missing period. There is no period. Why? Because the endometrium is still there. It's being supported by the progesterone because there is a pregnancy and the zygote, the embryo is already supporting the, the, the endometrium. It needs the endometrium. And we see the levels of progesterone gain even higher. If there's no pregnancy, this progesterone comes down like this. Low progesterone, the endometrial cells die, menstruation. Progesterone is still there, the endometrium remains. And that's what happens during pregnancy. This is a normal, usual behavior of estrogen and progesterone. You see both declining, estrogen and progesterone, and that is why menstruation happens. This is what I was saying about the birth control. Birth control pills, they contain estrogen and progesterone usually, in very small amounts. Normally, the, the cycle is like this. The levels of estrogen and progesterone have to change along the month. The estrogen has to go up at the middle of the cycle so there will be ovulation. Estrogen and progesterone have to be higher in the second part of the cycle so the endometrium grows. But if we give a known amount of estrogen and progesterone every single day of the cycle, the level of estrogen and progesterone will be just like a straight line. And they will not stimulate anything. The endometrium will not grow. The ovaries will not ovulate. And if I stop giving the pills, let's say at uh, day 28, well, the thin endometrium that is in the uterus will have no support from hormones and it will die. And since it's a very thin endometrium, it will see some, we call it spotting, the presence of very minimal amount of menstruation, some uh, spots we call it blood which is not a normal menstruation. It's just a bleeding that happens because you stop the pill at some point. If pregnancy happens, the corpus luteum keeps producing progesterone. It's rescued by who? By this hormone, HCG, which is produced by the developing embryo. So the embryo will send this hormone to the corpus luteum to keep producing progesterone. So the endometrium is still there. And this HCG is produced, make the corpus luteum produce progesterone until the first, the end of the first trimester, which is the point where the placenta is developed. And this tissue will start producing more progesterone that will take over for the rest of the pregnancy. Again, the same picture, we see the fluctuation of the levels of hormones and the changes on the endometrium at the bottom. So the fertilization, what happens in fertilization? Actually, there is what we call a window of opportunity 
what happens two days before ovulation to one day after ovulation. Because the sperm can survive up to three days in the uterine tube. And that's what I was saying. It may happen that ovulation happens, the oocyte gets to the tube and it's already sperm there waiting. And at the moment of conception or fertilization, the sperm penetrates the plasma membrane of the oocyte, which is in secondary oocyte stage. And since the secondary oocyte is haploid, N, and the sperm is N, they reconstitute the number of chromosomes to 2N and the beginning of a new individual. We call that the zygote. When the sperm and egg get together, they join their chromosomes and we have a 46 chromosomes again. There are changes, there are other changes in the physiology during the, during the month, uh, and one of them is the basal body temperature. What is this? Is the body temperature. Is the body temperature. And you follow these dots that are connected by a line, and it practically follows the red line of progesterone. Because the progesterone, one of the effects is to increase the body temperature. Not too much, there's no fever. It increases like 0 0.1, 0 0.2 degrees Celsius, up to 0.5, I would say. And the second part of the cycle, especially, that change happens all of a sudden during the ovulation. And that was, was um, taken in account as a sign of ovulation. Other hormones produced by the ovary, <coughs> estrogen, progesterone, relaxing, inhibiting, The relaxing, what it does is, as the name says, it relaxes. It relaxes what? It relaxes the joints. It relaxes the joints, especially during pregnancy, in preparation for birth, the pubic symphysis, the sacroiliac joints. And the estrogen has the res responsibility of the secondary sex characteristics. And it has many, many other functions. One of them is to keep the blood cholesterol levels low. Progesterone is the responsible for maturation of the endometrium and stimulation of the breast development also. And it inhibits GnRH and LH at the hypothalamus and pituitary gland. We saw this diagram before. These are the loops for the male and the female. In this case, for the female, we see that the ovary is making estrogens inhibin and progesterone. And these estrogen inhibin and progesterone are going to exert negative feedback on the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland. That's how this is controlled. So if you give birth control a same amount of estrogen and progesterone, there will be blocking of the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland will not produce LH or FSH. That's why there is no growth of follicles in the ovary. That's why there is no ovulation. The estrogen and progesterone that you're taking is blocking, is inhibiting the pituitary gland and hypothalamus from producing LH and FSH.
Relaxin is released by the corpus luteum of the ovary, relaxes the myometrium, the pubic symphysis, and inhibin, it works to inhibit FSH and LH at the hypothalamus pituitary gland. The uterine cycle, all these changes that we've been describing are related to the ovarian cycle. And the uterus, the, there must be a synchronization with all these facts. And there are four phases that we've seen in some of the pictures. The menstrual phase or menses, and at the day five, sometimes we describe this in a different way, like a pre-ovulatory phase right before ovulation. But ovulation is a central event, the day 14. And after that, the post-ovulatory phase. Or we can call it, ovulation is here, the proliferative phase because the endometrium proliferates and the secretory phase of the endometrium, it turns more secretory with the uh, more production of glycogen and nutrients. Menstruation is a degeneration of the endometrium when the level of hormones, estrogen and progesterone, is not the same. It declines, and therefore the support for these cells disappear, and the endometrial cells die. The blood vessels of the endometrium constrict, and that helps for the loss of the functional endometrium as menstruation. It is not only blood, it's endometrial tissue mixed with blood. Duration of the menstruation is usually one to five or seven days. It depends, it's different in everyone. And uh, these are the phases, pre-ovulatory or proliferative phase under the influence of estrogens and the post-ovulatory or secretory phase under the effect of the progesterone. In this phase, the endometrium increases the, the, the amount of mucus and glycogen, and the endometrium gets very thick. It gets ready for a fertilized egg to come. Well, in previous uh, slides, I mentioned that male and female reproductive system they develop from the same structures, like very early in the 12th week of development, or even before, we see only one common structure, that then it gets differentiated. In the internal organs, the same thing happens in the external organs. Here we see the undifferentiated stage, like about five-week embryo, you cannot tell if it's a male or female. <coughs> then later, at 10th week, you start seeing changes. The glans penis, the yellow part, the urethral folds, they start looking different. And then near birth is when we see the complete difference in both. As you see, the glans penis remains yellow and that's the clitoris, and yellow also. The urethral folds, they close up here in the midline, but in the female, those urethral folds will be the labia minora and the vestibule. All these under the influence of hormones also that are produced very early in the embryonic development. Female sexual response 
surface is controlled by the sympathetic nervous fibers, parasympathetic system from the sacral segment. And it also involves stimulation of erectile tissue like in the clitoris. But the sympathetic also comes after, as in the case of the male. But the response is completely different. The sympathetic discharge in this case causes contraction of muscles in the pelvic muscles and also in the uterus and the tubes. There's no ejaculation, there's no seminal vesicles, but the contraction is the same in male and the female. Contraction of the pelvic muscles, contraction of the uterus in the case of the female and tubes. And a couple of things about problems. We call this problem BPH, that stands for benign prostatic hypertrophy. It's the growth of the prostate gland, not necessarily cancer, this is benign, which causes obstruction of the urine flow. It's a common problem in some men after 50 years old, determined by genetics and other factors. At some point it may turn into cancer in few people. The other problem is infertility, which is described as the inability of a couple to get pregnant and have kids after one year, at least one year of unprotected sex. This is just a definition to standardize. It's not a reason to be one year, six months, or two years, but one year is what we consider the minimal, at least to start all the studies for infertility and see the different options that can be available. <coughs> this is how we see the enlarged prostate. It's actually obstructing the flow of urine. That's a, a problem that usually requires surgery and removal of the, of the tissue. And finally, some problems related with the menstruation. These are signs. These are signs, actually. Amenorrhea absence. This menorrhea means menstrual discomfort, pain during the menstruation. And it's related with contraction of the uterus because of the presence of excessive amount of prostaglandin sometimes. And dysfunctional uterine bleeding, or DUB, which is abnormal uterine bleeding. There are many, many different situations here in DUB. It may be something we call hypermenorrhea, which is excessive amount of, um, of blood in the menstruation. There is another one called polymenorrhea, which is very frequently, like every 20 days, every 15 days, which is not normal. We have oligomenorrhea, which is the low amount of loss of tissue in pregnancy, I mean in the menstruation. And as I say, all those are signs. It's just signs of something going on. There must be something wrong in the uterus, perhaps. Perhaps something wrong in the ovary, or even in the pituitary gland. So it's a series of studies that have to be done in order to find out what the problem is. The most common thing is just a temporary problem that gets easily fixed with, uh, with the first studies. Questions?